This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Welcome to Beyond Zero Emissions Community. My name is Adele and you're listening to 3CR 8.55am Community Radio Melbourne. Thank you so much to Marissa for the last hour of doing time. Our show Beyond Zero Emissions likes to share with the community what's happening around the country as well as the latest science and solutions in climate change action. Tonight's show is Tathra. It was recorded at Tathra Public School where the Bigger Valley have a 100% renewable energy target for 2030 and they've launched their project there. Uh, so Vivian Langford has um, been to Tathra and interviewed some of the community members there and the people that are involved in that project. So over to Vivian. I hope you enjoy the show. Good evening, listeners, and salut, Babette. Look, I travelled a long way to bring you this show. I went up by train to Bensdown, then by bus through Bruce Pascoe's country. Do you remember he talked to us from Genoa? Well, we stopped at Genoa. It's a very tiny little town, mostly boarded up, but surrounded by the most beautiful forest. It took me all day by bus going to the marvellous countryside in the south coast of New South Wales and Victoria, and I finally got to Bega. Now, some of my family have moved down this way, so when I was invited to the launch of 100% renewable energy in the Bega Valley, how could I resist making this trip? One of my relatives drove me down to Tathra on the day, and I walked along the coast where you could still see evidence of the bushfire that exploded here a year ago. Before the meeting, I spoke to a local doctor called Matthew Knott. He had invited me to this event and he organises huge human signs saying such things as clean energy for eternity. They had that on Tathra Beach and the population of the town absolutely doubled to fill up those words, clean energy for eternity. And that's the local group now called that. They also had signs saying make the switch now or 100% renewables imagine all written out with people forming the letters so I talked to him about about his big vision and then I talked to Joe Dodds from the Bega Council this is a beautiful and soulful interview with her she is in touch she lives in Tartha and she's in touch with some of the people who've just survived the bushfire in different 
ways and she's interested in helping them and nurturing that spirit of survival. She talks about the absolute fear of climate change and the rage that we can all feel at leaders who are incapable of an emergency response. So then inside the Tathra School Hall, we hear from the main speakers. Dr John Hewson, former Liberal leader, says he said to us all how good it is to be out here at the cutting edge where regional communities are leading the way rather than in Canberra. And he says that a government that we've got at the moment with no emissions reduction strategy, no climate action plan, he says has really forfeited its right to govern. We've got a big cheer for that. One of the most thrilling items on this Tathra evening was uh, about pumped hydro, the potential for that in the hills around Bega Valley. Not only are they aiming for 100%, mostly solar power, but it will be stored in dams around the valley where the water pumped up by solar energy in the day can descend at night, turning turbines that make energy available round the clock. Professor Andrew Blakers from ANU's Centre for Sustainable Energy, he said that Australia is fast becoming a renewable energy superstar and we'll have 50% renewable energy installed in five years. I haven't heard this before. It was so thrilling to hear. He said it'll be 100% by 2031. It was such a thrilling message that you could have hardly credit that there are still politicians talking about new coal-fired power stations in this country. And if you heard enough about renewable energy halfway through the program, hang in there, because the last speaker is Lynn McColl from the Bermagui Chamber of Commerce. She talks about the local dairy and fishing and tourism industries and how they can all contribute. For example, she talks about oyster shells as a carbon-rich eco-resource and all the ways that they're using the oysters and the mussels. She talks about the the biodigesters in the dairy industry and how they're reducing emissions. So welcome to Tathra and the Bega Valley of New South Wales. This item is called Clean Energy for Eternity and I'm at Tathra on the south coast of New South Wales. I'm with Dr Matthew Knott who's a very exciting person to be with because he really thinks big and it's a community meeting here in the local public school. I'd like to ask you Matthew what is the Tathra community voting on tonight? So we're having a public meeting tonight to vote on a renewable energy target. Uh, We've had a target since 2007, 50-50 by 2020. Uh, As 2020 uh, draws uh, closer and closer to its its end, we need a new target. And we've decided that the best way of attracting renewable energy business uh, to our part of the world is to have an aggressive renewable energy target. Our target's going to be 100% renewable energy by 2030, and that's a target that we're hoping to set for the entire Bega Valley. Uh, with Tathra leading the way. I notice a lot of solar panels on the roofs, but how would it spell out to have 100% renewable? What would it look like? Well, just just imagine if we had a a, a community-owned solar farm in every town in, in the Bega Valley. Uh, imagine um, you know the, the sort of jobs that we could, could attract. You know that that we could employ 300 tr- tradies, high-quality jobs, mm. installing solar panels. We need to look very carefully at energy storage if we're going to achieve a 100% renewable energy target. So we're, we have some exciting talks tonight about pumped hydro storage. Yeah. Uh, battery storage is becoming more and more affordable because we, we need to be very mindful that we've got a beautiful new Bega hospital that w- needs to run day and night. Yeah. 
So we need to be careful about how we do this so that we have a reliable energy supply. We also look, have to look at our energy efficiency. And to do that, uh, it's challenging. Uh, you know, we need to be mindful about electricity prices. We need to be mindful about the impact that a 100% renewable energy target has on the electricity grid. You know, what does that mean for essential energy? We need to work together with communities, uh, fed, uh, local government, state government, federal government to make this happen. So I guess part of the reason why we're, we're making a big statement here so that we can encourage our politicians at all levels of politics to work with us on this issue. I am detecting a very strong um, desire for change amongst people in this part of the world. I'll tell the listeners, I first met Matthew in Canberra where he was organising a huge human sign saying the word now and then just coming down into Tata. Now there's also another huge sign just written up between the trees saying now... And we, all the listeners to this program, are very impatient, as you are, for this now to happen. But what is the power of models, do you think? Like, if this town became a model, I know a lot of tourists come here along the Sapphire Coast all through summer. Could you see this idea catching on to other councils? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is all about attracting jobs, investment, money into our town. This is about regional rejuvenation. I, what I'm hoping to demonstrate to other councils around Australia, regional councils, is that this is uh, an em- economic boon for uh, regional Australia. You know, at the moment, we're at the end of the grid line from the Hunter Valley. Uh, so we basically uh, purchase our electricity from the Hunter Valley. What about if we start producing more energy than we use and we can sell our electrons back to the Hunter Valley? Yeah. I mean, there's an economic boom for you. Yeah. So this is, this is all about regional re- rejuvenation. And if we can prove that that's the case then surely other, other councils are going to follow us. Yeah. You know, why is this town so far ahead in climate awareness? You've got a big sign up on your water tank and you've done these big things on the beach, I think, human science. And, I, I like, how do you get a whole town behind you to do this? Well, I tell you, when you're, when you're talking about renewable energy, uh, the resource is really important. You know, you need a sunny location, you need wind, you know, all those sorts of things. We've got hydro in the southeast. A lot, lot of opportunities there. You need to, to be able to afford to install it. You, you need a lot of ingredients set up to set a 100% renewable energy target. But the most important thing is a sense of community. Uh, and that's what makes Tartha a really special uh, place. We have a very strong sense of community here. We've been at the forefront of uh, looking at community solutions to climate change since 2006 mm. when we had a, a human sign on Tartha Beach. 3,000 people turned up to Tartha, a town with a population of 1,200, so we <laughs> tripled the population of the yeah. town for the day. Uh, so since 2006, we've been, we've been really working hard at looking at community-based solutions to, to the urgent problem of climate change. But really now, I think, you know, certainly... Climate change presents a huge threat to us in southeastern New South Wales, and that's become really a palpable threat with the bushfires of March 18th, 2018. Uh, we know that the IPCC is saying that by the time my kids are my age, the planet is going to be two degrees warmer. And the CSIRO says that a two-degree warming is going to triple the number of catastrophic bushfire days. Mm. So I think climate change is a really palpable risk. But not only that, uh, it's a huge economic opportunity for us. To to achieve a 100% renewable energy target, we're going to have to employ hundreds of technically skilled tradespeople. Uh, We're going to have to look at um, attracting... Uh, people to our region who are experts in this sort of thing. There's a lot lot of things we need to weigh up. 
we have a lot of expertise in the Bega Valley already, yeah. a lot of people who know a lot about renewable energy. Yeah. So we have, I think, all the resources necessary to meet a 100% renewable energy target, and I'm really hoping that we can vote for it tonight. My last question, I know the Beyond Zero Emissions will... Listeners will love to hear this because we've interviewed Andrew Blakers several times. Now, he's an expert on pumped hydro. And when I saw him, he's going to speak to listeners tonight. I'll record what he says, but, you know, you'll have to wait a while to hear this. But pumped hydro storage, where are you going? Are you planning to have that in the bigger valley or feeding into your grid? Well, Vivian, I'm not a technical expert, and um, I'm the wrong person to ask that question to. But Andrew Blakers has looked into the bigger valley. You're a visionary, though. <laughs> Yes, but I'm not a technical person, so I'm going to to fob that question off to Andrew Blakers, who is a technical expert, and that's why we've brought him down here tonight, to to, uh, excite us about the possibilities. More of that later, listeners. Thank you very much. That was Dr Matthew Knott here at Tathra. Um, I'm at Tathra on the south coast of New South Wales. Steamers used to go back and forth to Sydney, and before the big wharf was built, cattle being offloaded to this fine dairy country had to swim. In recent times, this community has become highly motivated to resist climate change with everything they've got. They had a big reminder from nature last year, late in the season when the bushfire plains had returned to base and a devastating fire jumped the Bega River and burned many houses in Tathra. So with me is Bega Valley Councillor Joe Dodds, who contradicted the then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and she said he was wrong to tell us this fire has nothing to do with climate change. So welcome to VZE Radio, Joe. What was the fallout from those remarks? <laughs> oh, look, many and varied. I think a lot of people were upset that I'd spoken out so soon. That was certainly something that was reflected back to me. And in hindsight, I absolutely understand the sensitivity around that because while people are dealing with the the immediate aftermath is a very stressful time. And and the fire was on my property. So um, although I didn't lose my house, uh, we were certainly dealing with that fire for two weeks. People think Mm. the fire went out when it hit Tartha. We had two weeks of managing it and having services throughout our property and helicopters overhead and my partner up and down those hills Mm. every day for two weeks. So it, it was a difficult time to have said it, but seeing that fire come for my house after everything I'd done and seen my community do to prevent exactly that was just this moment of suddenly feeling the urgency mm. of climate change, that, I, that every day that we don't act is another day that we're going to see another community experience these disasters. So I was suddenly overwhelmed with the urgency of that message and I felt like if I couldn't speak out immediately afterwards... There is no day. Nobody Mm. comes to you and says, today's the day. Can Mm. you talk now? You have to make that decision yourself. And I made that decision, um, right or wrong. I'm happy for people to to disapprove of it. That's, um, you know, because it is difficult for people to hear Mm. when they're in the middle of dealing with the emergency. But on the other hand, if we don't deal with this urgently, then we are facing annihilation. Yeah. Well, I think we are, we're all dealing with things that are difficult to hear, and it's exactly that. And you're one of these people that make it easier to hear because you believe in the power of stories, don't you? And I'd like to know, you've had something to do with your local group, people who did lose their houses, who have been traumatised by all of this. What's How has that helped them telling their stories or not telling their stories, but being able to share with people who do. Tell us some of the stories or how it's, that has affected them. 
It's a really deep human instinct to turn something which is completely out of control, and a, you can't imagine anything more out of control than a huge natural disaster. There's very little rhyme or reason to it, and there, were, there was no arsonist. There was no individual who started this. So it, it just comes from a, a, a place that's hard to, to identify. Mm. So to make sense of that, our instinct is to start forming... Uh, a narrative around it that this thing has some meaning in some way and I mean I'm a storyteller from way back so mm. it's 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 my habit and my art to to find the narrative mm. in any event and I've been doing that for years but it was really interesting hearing from um, particularly one of the guys who'd stayed and fought the fire here in Tathra and he had saved his own house and and saved neighbours on either side and he, he was deeply traumatised but he realised that in telling that story, in writing it down, what just what happened on the day, mm. that he it gave him a, a different perspective mm. on the event. He was able to get a little bit more distance and that allowed him to then both find some sort of comfort in the distance but also some meaning started to emerge out of that narrative and he... He describes it as, as quite transformative, that process of writing it down and then that become a, becoming a story on paper and a story about him and what happened on the day. Mm. Um, and I, I think we'll rewrite a lot of those stories as we move through the, the long, long process of coming to terms with what happened. Yeah, this is why I think it's important to tell the stories because it's going to, there's going to be a time even in our lifetime when all these stories just start to coalesce and there's going to be too many stories of floods and the, the, the disaster, the catastrophe is going to be too large for people to even care, can't even care about the next town. But here it's still dotted around. It's happening in Tasmania now and the big fires have been everywhere and the floods in Queensland. It's still sort of dotted around and we have time to tell these stories so that's why I think it's marvellous what you're doing it's yeah it's connecting the dots isn't it and it's also I I, I keep even that it's been nearly a year that I've sort of been on this furious <laughs> journey of trying to raise this story in people's minds and even in my mind over that year it's the story has changed as I've stepped back and then back and back and got these meta views of what's happening and it was only uh, this week that I suddenly had this sense and it was quite horrendous a sense that in some ways I was looking at a, a horror movie mm. and it you know there are ups and downs <laughs> it, as I move through understanding mm. the biggest pictures possible of climate change but I think I had avoided looking at this particular view until I had people around me who who were offering support in terms of climate grief oh. and that's when mm. I kind of stepped towards that instead of avoiding it because it was too much and I stepped towards it and when I when I took that that view of what is happening to the planet on the whole and what is likely or possible should we not take urgent action it it seemed to me nightmarish the loss of species the loss of wild places and the intricate habitats and systems of of life not just of our life and our cities and mm. our agriculture, but of life that has a right simply to exist because it's been here mm. for millions of years and it's evolved and, and here they are, the spectacular butterflies mm. or wild bees or mm. the, the millions of things we haven't even met yet, no. <laughs> you know, whole species we haven't met and yeah. we're risking losing all of that in this rolling catastrophe that we're not 
really comprehending yet and that just breaks my heart and it breaks my heart that I try and raise that issue and when I'm speaking to the people who aren't aware of that meta picture yet they I can see they they not they don't understand what I'm talking about and I get that I yeah. I've ignored that message too so I've yeah. I've been in their shoes as well but doesn't mean I shouldn't stop telling the story, but it's it's a really hard story to tell too because it's getting to the heart of the grief. Well, this is at Tathra Public School and I just looked through the window and I noticed that the motto of this school is respect, responsibility and kindness, all of which are wonderful virtues, but putting in the context of a climate emergency, I think that's what we need ourselves, to each other, kindness and responsibility for what we're doing. But around the world, children are going on strike for strong, strong climate action. And I was just recently in Melbourne and the school strike people, they said, we're, we're into litigation next. And I thought, goodness me, they can't even vote, but they're going to take us to court. Fabulous. But what new attitudes do you see emerging? Oh, look, the, the, what the school kids are doing has just been the biggest hope for me. If it wasn't for seeing their understanding... I, I would I would feel overwhelmed to the point almost of inaction. Mm. But I think they are, and it's a horrible thing because their future in this world will, they will overlap more of the disaster than my life will. I'm mm. 55. I'll be, I'll be gone one mm. way or another before things, well, presumably we get too extreme. But the people coming through in, currently in school who, who are going to spend their entire lives dealing with this problem and they've already begun and I think back to my days at school where the nuclear threat was yeah. big but it 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 never became a it never had an impact it never happened and it it drifted away and I you know had the opportunity to get on with my life and all mm. of its minute problems which mm. <laughs> completely overwhelmed me in the way that one's own small problems do but this is generations of kids coming through who don't have that luxury they're Mm. having to stare down that future Mm. and I'm in awe of their ferocity in standing up and doing that risky thing of saying no to authority I'm not going to school I'm going to tell you adults what you need to be doing because you're not doing it so uh just I'm just so thrilled that they're doing it and I back them 100% and anything I can do to help those kids get their message out I think is the most important thing I can do. My last question is about councils. I think around Australia and around the world really local councils are leading the way declaring a climate emergency, pioneering many new things to protect people in case of of disaster and to ease the transition to renewable energy. I wonder what is the Bega Valley and other nearby councils doing? Well, we do have a climate strategy. Unfortunately, um, some of the the issues at council with staff and the fire itself did put back some of the timing for those things, but that hopefully will be released soon. We'll see the... I think it's a draft coming up. So um, we'll get to have a look at that and see how good it is and make comment. What councils do, I think, is critical because the movement for climate action is very much grassroots. So it's going to come from the bottom up. I shouldn't say the bottom, it's going to come from the people Mm. down to the politicians. So, (laughs) And councils are the closest to the people. We hear that all the time from the other levels of government. Uh, So they need to be listening to councils and councils need to be listening to their communities. And that's why tonight's so important here at Tathra. That was Councillor Joe Dodds speaking at Tathra. Now we're inside the hall. It's packed, and to my delight, the Four Corners team is here. 
Now, I report on many climate action meetings, and usually I'm the only media there. So to see the ABC interviewing local people means to me that climate action is becoming mainstream. Dr Matthew Knott opened the night with a Scottish piper. You'll hear everybody gasp because he was so splendid, an elderly man with his big red cheeks puffed out and a green and beige tartan outfit on. It was just the most fantastic start to a really brilliant town meeting in Tathra. Very exciting night. This is all about the economic opportunity that renewable energy affords a region like ours. And we're here tonight to vote on a 100% renewable energy target by 2030 for the Bega Valley Shire, uh, with Tathra leading the way. I also want to vote uh, at the end of the night on what you think about us painting that target on the Tathra water tower. So we're now going to uh, open this meeting in a traditional way. Dave, if I could just say, Dave Corbett was the first pipe master at Scotch College in 1948. (laughs) So stay fit, Dave. I'm hoping that if tonight goes well, we're going to need you in 2030. I'm really detecting a very strong mood for change in regional Australia. People really searching for leadership on climate change, but also, particularly in regional areas, appreciating that uh, renewable energy offers us a huge economic opportunity and that's what that's what tonight's all about economic opportunity so 100% by 2030 that is a 100% renewable energy target for the Bega Valley Shire by the year 2030 what i mean by uh, 100% renewable energy is that all the electricity that we consume is produced by renewable energy it means we're going to have to look very carefully at energy conservation uh, we're going to have to think very hard about renewable energy. Uh, we're going to have to look at how we store the energy, and we've got some of the answers to those questions today. Professor Andrew Blakers. Thanks very much. I've got some good news, which I hope you'll all understand and uh, take away from this meeting. Fully 85% of all greenhouse gas emissions are caused by oil, gas and coal. The land sector and some others is the the last 15%. So if you you want to really make deep emission cuts, you need to address oil, gas and coal, and that means renewable energy. Renewable energy really is the only truly fast and effective way of displacing uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So what I have in this slide here is 2015, 16, 17 and 18 data for the global deployment of a range of renewable energy technologies. The one on the left is solar photovoltaics. That is now the world's number one new global capacity installed each year. Wind is number two. Coal is headed for negative capacity installed each year because power stations are now closing faster than they're opening. 
and hydro is also headed for the rocks because basically most of the rivers that could be dammed have been dammed. And then there's a bunch of, John, uh, of others that really have lost the race and are not going to be important. So the take-home message is wind and solar completely dominate global deployment of energy, not just renewables, but of energy. And the next message is that Australia is the global renewable energy superstar. So what you see here is the um, data for 2017 in the blue for a whole range of countries and regions. And in the red you see data for 2016, 17, 18 and projected for 2019 for Australian deployment in terms of um, watts per person per year. Australia is currently installing four to five times as much renewable energy, wind and solar PV, as the EU or the USA or Japan or China. So we are far, far ahead of any other country in the world. We're double the next best, which is uh, Uruguay. We're two and a half times better than Germany, three times better than the UK, five times better than the EU, Japan, China or the USA. And this has truly important implications for global greenhouse emissions going into the future. So what's going to happen is that the, uh, annual green, uh, the quarterly greenhouse accounts that the Australian government produces are going to start to fall, um, either the next quarterly accounts or the one after, because of this renewable energy boom that's coming through, wind and solar. So the little green extensions there on the end of the um, electricity-related emissions will start to fall faster than the emissions in other sectors of the economy are rising. So this will happen uh, within a few months because this enormous uh, wave of solar and wind has come through the pipeline and is now being deployed and completed and interconnected. So at the moment we're <coughs> deploying above six gigawatts of new wind and solar each year, about one third on rooftop, one third solar farms and one third wind farms. So in 2018, we had 21% renewable electricity, and that is increasing at a rate of half a percent per month. So at the end of this year, it's going to be about 26%. At the end of the following year, it will be about 32%, and so forth, and we'll hit 50% in 2024, and 100% in 2031, at the current rate. And I think the rate is going to increase, not decrease, because the price of wind and solar continues to fall. And this has major implications for greenhouse gas emissions because we are on track to reach our Paris greenhouse gas emission target in 2025, which is five years early. No other country on Earth is going to do that. And the reason is that we are installing renewable energy five times faster than the rest of the developed world. And 10 to 20 times faster than almost every other country on Earth. We truly are the renewable energy superstars. And we've shown that we can do 6 or 7 gigawatts a year, and there's no reason we can't do this and better into the indefinite future. So renewables really are the key to very deep and very rapid decarbonisation. This is going to continue simply because the economics of it is so compelling. Uh, solar, PV and wind are now cheaper than existing gas power stations, cheaper than new build gas or coal power stations, cheaper than gas 
uh, heating for your air or water, um, competitive with the operating cost of existing black coal power stations. So all of the existing black coal power stations in New South Wales and Queensland are going to come under severe competitive pressure from wind and solar over the next few years and I think that most of them will shut by 2030 because they cannot compete with wind and solar. Even sunk cost power stations can't do it. And it's not, it doesn't end there. Not only will we drive gas out of low temperature heating in buildings, we, will get, we are going to drive gas out of high temperature heating in industry because the price of gas at $10 a gigajoule is about the same now as the price of renewable electricity in large quantity. So we are talking about a 65% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by driving coal out of the electricity system driving gas out of uh, heating in building, driving gas out of heating in industrial uh, facilities, and hopefully in the 2020s, driving oil out of the motor car fleet by turning to electric vehicles. So this is low-hanging fruit, 67% of emissions, all sitting there at the right price, and renewables is going to undercut them all and essentially take their market share. So we have a great prospect now for very rapid and very deep cuts in greenhouse gas emissions, far faster, far faster than most people understand. So of course, once you get to very high levels of greenhouse gas emissions, you have to worry about grid stability, and there are two ways to deal with it. One is storage, and the other is interstate and interregional high voltage transmission lines. The transmission lines are very important. It means that when it's bad weather here, it could be good in Queensland or vice versa. You swap power and that hugely reduces the amount of storage by smoothing out local weather. Storage is batteries and pumped hydro. So this is the famous Tumut 3 power station in Australia in the Snowy Mountains. The upper reservoir and the lower reservoir are connected by a set of pipes. The water can go backwards and forwards. So when we've got lots of wind and solar, the water goes uphill. When we need that energy back again, it comes back down through the turbine. That upper reservoir is also the lower reservoir for the famous Snow 2.0 proposal. And uh, the Tantango Reservoir, which is 650 metres further up the hill, is the upper reservoir. There are opportunities for on-river pumped hydro, but the vast majority of pumped hydro storages are going to be off-river. This is a great example from Italy. What you see is uh, a square kilometre uh, reservoir at the bottom of the hill, half a square kilometre at the top of the hill. There's a pipe with a pump turbine under the mountain and the same water goes round and round a circle. No river required and um, this is a gigawatt rated uh, system. It's, this is real power but it's only six or eight hours so it's overnight storage. It's not seasonal storage and that's primarily what you need for a wind and solar power system. Now, it just so happens that the Bega Valley Shire is blessed with a vast number of potential pumped hydro sites. So what you see here is flocks and flocks of upper and lower reservoirs connected by um, a tunnel or a pipe, uh, according to a synthetic image arising from our modelling. Over the next few months, we will uh, continue, we will go right through the whole continent of Australia and publish on our website a complete and final version of all possible pumped hydro systems in Australia, and these will be rated into A, B, C, D, E categories according to approximate price. The upper reservoir, the lower reservoir, 
the um, power in a range of powers, the range of uh, energy storage times, and uh, a, a huge amount of detail about each pair. And so you can just go and choose the one that you're interested in and have a, a really detailed look. And if you decide you really are interested, you can then hire a company to do the detailed planning. <laughs> so this is a close-in of um, some of the reservoirs um, down um, in the next valley, uh, just down near Cathcart. Um, these are the upper reservoirs. You, the thin lines you see would be the hypothetical tunnels that are under the ground to the lower reservoir. And uh, there's a lot of really, really good sites between the um, upper and lower parts of the escarpment in the Cathcart and Brown Mountain districts. So looking at solar radiation, um, it's not so great down here. It's probably about 20% uh, not, uh, less than the Kuma district and another 20% less than, say, Broken Hill. But still, it's perfect for rooftop solar and so there's a lot of opportunity to do a lot of local generation. Uh, the wind resource down here is not very good, um, much better up on the tablelands, the Boko Rock wind farm for example, and so um, if, if you wanted to go the wind route you'd have to team up with Monero to, to do it. Transmission is a little weak down here which means that um, there will be uh, trouble in transferring energy from here to Sydney or vice versa. Uh, so one important consideration would be to find out really what the capacity of all of the transmission to this region is and um, uh, matching that up with the demand in this region. And hopefully um, there is spare capacity so that you can trade with other regions so that when it's raining here you can import power and when it's sunny here you can export power. And overall over the course of a year hopefully the exports and the imports balance so that you really are 100%. So this is um, just a close-up of Bermagui and when you have a close-up look, uh, uh, close look you'll see that uh, remarkably few houses have got PV on their rooftops and I think there's scope for a lot of pressure to be bought, brought on every business that's got a sunny large rooftop to put in 5, 10, 20, 50, 100 gigawatt, uh, kilowatts of um, solar. And for every person in this room who lives in their own house where the roof is sunny should also consider putting on a 5 or 10 kilowatt system. It makes economic sense. You can store the power, you can export it, you can put it into your hot water system. Uh, it just makes, I mean, the cost of solar is now so low, it really is the way to go. So if you want to go to 100% renewable bigger valley, somewhat faster than the whole of Australia is going to get there, and the whole of Australia is going to be heading towards 100% in late 2020s, then um, we have to observe that we've got reasonable sunshine, uh, very little wind, only a small amount of hydro, um, and negligible other renewables. So it's solar PV is the key. Um, you want to maximise the solar PV on rooftops. You want to identify each and every substation belonging to each and every town and put a combined ground-mounted PV system plus the roof-mounted PV systems equal to the capacity of that substation so that every substation, every transmission line has as much solar on it as can be um, accommodated by the technical requirements of that substation. So most of the time the power is flowing back up the line rather than down to here during the day. And uh, teaming up with Monero for pumped hydro and wind and solar would be also a very good thing to do. So in conclusion, um, PV and wind completely dominate global new generation capacity and 100% in Australia. 
uh, storage and transmission are off the shelf pumped hydro and high voltage power lines to support a secure 100% electricity grid and we have to worry about this now because we're heading there very fast and Australia is on track for really deep emissions reductions given uh, led by the fact that we are the global superstar putting in solar and wind five times faster than the big northern economies, EU, Japan, United States and Europe, 10 times faster than, than India, 20 times faster than the global average. You know, rapid renewables are a truly positive story and it, it matters not just to this shire, not just to this country but to the whole world. We are showing that for low latitude countries like Australia, which don't have cold winters where there's no sunshine, can go rapidly, very rapidly, to very deep greenhouse gas emissions cuts at approximately zero cost because solar and wind are now cheaper than fossil fuels. And the fact is that 80% of the world's population does not live in high latitudes, does not have the need for seasonal storage, does not have cold winters. They're more like Australia. These countries, which dominate growth in emissions, are like Australia. In the same way that these countries are going to skip the landline era for phones and go straight to mobiles, these countries will follow the Australian example, skip the fossil fuel era and go straight to renewables. Thank you. Perhaps our next speaker, Dr John Mifflin, might have something to say about that. Let me begin by also paying my respects to our Indigenous forebears, the original owners of the land on which we're meeting and my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. If I might be able to make a personal comment, I think it's about time we gave them proper recognition in our constitutive progress across all the areas in which there are gaps in terms of Aboriginal disadvantage. Uh, I was impressed by your video, Matthew, and in fact I don't know whether any of you uh, remember the... Um, high school student protests recently about climate change. One of the best examples that I saw in that was at the Byron Bay Public School, where the headmaster called the 500 students together and said that they, it would be recorded that they'd missed a day at school if they actually participated in that, in that uh, demonstration. So, of course, the 500 of them did <laughs> take advantage of that opportunity. And the living memory that I have of that occasion is they went to an open area, a park in Byron Bay, and stood in, in the shape of our future. And I think that uh, is a picture you could add to your video. It's also a pleasure to be here tonight. I was deli delighted to be asked by, uh, by Matthew because um, it's good to be at the cutting edge of the debate in this country. I mean, so much time in Parliament House, you get the feeling that the, you're so far from the cutting edge, it doesn't matter. But the communities around Australia that, uh, that Martin's just identified, some of the main ones, Hepburn and Bengala and Sapphire Wind Farm and so on, uh, and yourselves are leading the way. And I think it's smart politics, isn't it, to recognise the inevitability of the transition to a low-carbon society and the fundamentally significant role of renewables in that transition and the fact that 100% renewable energy is an inevitability. So wouldn't you think that in politics you'd be smart enough to recognise that and get on the trend? <laughs> I 
I'm particularly personally frustrated by my experience in this area. I got interested in the area of climate change in the late 80s and early 90s, when the prediction of climate scientists was that we'll, have to, uh, we'll see a lot more extreme weather events occurring with greater frequency and intensity. Pretty simple prediction and overwhelmingly validated by our experience of the last uh, three decades. And again, you'd think that uh, somebody in Canberra would pay attention to that sort of prediction and the intensity of bushfires or floods or cyclones or hurricanes or whatever that we've seen and the damage that they've wrought in societies right across the world. I tried to make the point in my uh, um, fightback package in the early 90s, I took to the 93 election, um, I know I'm a failed politician, not much good at this stuff, <laughs> but we did have an environment policy as part of that package, which I'm sure nobody read. They were distracted, I'm sure, by the GST and other things, birthday cakes or whatever. But um, we call for a 20% cut in emissions by 2000 off a 1990 base. And I'm still waiting to see that sort of transition after 30 years of just political point short scoring and blame shifting uh, in Canberra and some very conspicuous examples of bad politics. Uh, one particular individual who's had a lot of attention in recent days is Barnaby Joyce, the seat in New England. In New England, uh, in his electorate, there's a wind farm owned by Goldwind, a state-owned, Chinese state-owned enterprise, which normally he'd object to. But they tell me he's been badgering them over the years, can't I come down and put a shovel in the ground, can't I launch a turbine, can't I... And he goes along and makes speeches about the enormous benefit of renewable energy to that electorate, uh, you know, in terms of the dollars in investment and the jobs that it creates. And then he gets on a plane and he goes down to Canberra and he attacks some state premier, like Jay Weatherill in South Australia, who happens to have a renewable energy target. And how dare he? Now, that's the nature of the game that's been played. Point scoring, blame shifting, rather than dealing with the problem. Now, as I said, I wasn't much of a politician, but I reckon if 50% of the elected are telling you this is a significant issue, you should listen to them, right? But in all the recent surveys and polls that I've seen over the last several years, we're now at about 70 to 80% of people who think that we should be doing something substantive about uh, the transition to a low-carbon society. And about 80% of people expect that that transition will be to renewables. And yet nobody in Canberra of any substance seems to have listened to that over the time. In fact, my old press secretary, Tony Abbott, spent a lot of time trying to close down the renewable energy sector. And, um, you know, we've seen what happened to him. <laughs> so I think that the challenge today is to face the reality of the transition. I mean... Uh, Andrew has painted a pretty glowing, glowing picture of how fast we're going to get there. I've been disappointed that after the 30 years that I've been involved in this issue, we still do not have a national energy policy. We still do not have a climate action strategy, an emissions reduction strategy. Sure, we're committed to 26 to 28% reduction in emissions by 2030, which is about half what the government authority at the time recommended it should be. And if we're going to get to net zero emissions by 2050 or net negative emissions globally by 2050, we have a long way to go globally and nationally to achieve that. And yet we do not have an energy policy, we do not have an emissions reduction strategy or a climate action plan. And I've been saying in recent days that a government that doesn't have 
the climate action strategy, the climate action plan, forfeits its right to govern. I tried to make this point in relation to my old seat, the Wentworth by-election, where I thought if a strong independent stood and ran on the issue of climate, they'd win. And Karen Phelps did exactly that. I called on the Wentworth by-election to be effectively a referendum on climate change. And of course she won. Now I noticed that the government's response immediately was that there are no lessons from what the Wentworth experience or that she only won by 1,800 votes. But that doesn't count the fact that she got 17.5% swing before the 1,800 votes. She got nearly a 20% swing running hard on the issue of climate. Uh, and so many of the traditional Liberal supporters in that seat were offended by the fact that we didn't have a national, uh, national uh, energy strategy or energy plan. We didn't have a climate action plan. And yet nobody's listening, nobody's learning. And I think that's the tragedy of where we sit in Canberra today. The point you've made in terms of the now and the photograph of uh, Parliament House below it. You can send a very clear message from this meeting to those people in Canberra that the communities around Australia are moving, moving very fast in the direction of what we should be doing, a transition to a low carbon society. Let me finish with a bit of a side remark. I don't know whether you remember the famous uh, summit last year between um, Trump and Putin in Helsinki, famous photograph of the two of them walking out of there together. Putin says to Trump anyway, Donald J. Trump. What's the J stand for? Trump says, genius. <laughs> and all my point is tonight is there ain't a lot of genius when it comes to energy policy or emissions reduction policy in Canberra. Thank you. My name is Lynn McColl, I'm President of the Marimbula Chamber of Commerce and I'm a resident and business owner in Marimbula. I would also like to pay my respects to the Elders of the UN Nation, past, present and emerging, on whose land we meet tonight. We're all very aware of the doom and gloom around the climate change issue, but there are also opportunities, as we've already discussed. Climate is the ultimate disruptor and we all need to think of really smart solutions to some very specific problems we face in the industries we have in our shire and shires are, you know, surrounding us. There are professionals here tonight from the renewable energy sector, so I'm not going to even try to engage on that level. But I would like to speak about our local industries and communities and look at ways that sustainable and renewable technologies can and should be incorporated into energy-saving solutions, creating circular economies and moving towards our 100% renewable targets for the shire. Economically, our region is a really diverse one, as we range from the coast to the mountains with industries like oysters, dairy, tourism, cruise liners and forestry. That diversity makes for spirited discussions when we look at sustainability and waste management solutions for our region. The thing is, there isn't just one solution. There are many, and some of those are industry-specific. I'm not an expert in any of these fields, but the research is there for anyone who cares to look for it. For example, oysters and mussels, which we have in abundance up and down our coast. Shells are a wonderful eco-resource. Mollusk shells, including mussels, pippies, oysters and scallops, are pulling carbon dioxide out of the oceans and storing it. There are also natural water cleaners. Healthy shellfish fish soak up pollutants, including nitrogen. 
artificial reefs made from oyster shells can be created like a coral reef in large quantities to act as a nursery for baby oysters and as a refuge or home for other marine life. James Morris, a researcher and team member of CACHE, a calcium in a changing environment, says that 7 million tonnes of shells are dumped into landfill each year around the world, which is a colossal waste of potentially useful biomaterials. Reusing shell waste is a perfect example of a circular economy, particularly as shells are such a valuable biomaterial. Not only does the shell improve the sustainability of the aquaculture industry moving forward, but it can also provide secondary economic benefits to shellfish growers and processors as well. Ground-up shells can also be fed to hens as a calcium substitute and spread onto farmers' fields to control soil acidity. It can also be used as a substitute for limestone in the making of concrete and cement and building materials and used as a road base material, reducing the need for quarrying or mining of traditional materials. I just want to move on to FOGO now. This is a Bigger Valley Shire Council initiative, which I think has been implemented incredibly successfully. It's way ahead of the game when it comes to recycling food and garden waste. FOGO, as most of us in the room will know, is a weekly food and garden organics collection service to divert waste from landfill and increase production of compost. In the few months since its implementation, it has reduced landfill waste in the Shire by over 30%. The food and garden waste is composted and mulched at tips and then made available for the public to use in their gardens and for council to use in managed gardens. The compost is used to improve soil quality for landscape and erosion control. It has a fertilising effect and because the waste is not going into gardens, not into landfill creating methane, it introduces carbon quality into the soils, increasing microbial populations and it helps plant, prevent plant disease, mobilises nutrients and improves moisture absorb absorption and water holding capacity for plants, reducing the need for watering. The mulch creates, created protects the soil surface and prevents erosion reduces runoff and is insulation for keeping soil cooler in summer and warmer in winter. It's renewable and environmentally friendly, which means it's putting carbon back into the soil. The FOGO system is a talking point in other shires who are now researching how they can implement something similar in their regions. The other thing we have a lot of around this shire is cows. Cows create a lot of manure and to harness the gas that produces, methane digesters have been invented. Cow manure and other waste product from dairy farms is collected into methane digesters, turning the waste into clean energy, useful for pumping into the grid or powering milking machines or sheds. It, the energy produced can also be stored in batteries and used to provide sustainable energy for the dairy, therefore reducing load on the grid and reducing farming costs. An initiative like this is affordable and easy to achieve for a small operator or scaled up, depending on the size of the operation. All these relatively simple technologies and initiatives which we can all use or participate in allow us to positively contribute to sustainability and reach the targets set by the 100% Renewable 2030. Not only is sustainability an end unto itself, but it offers opportunities for the development of social enterprise and new business in this region and forms an important part of the new decarbonised economy. So welcome to Tathra and the Bega Valley of New South Wales.
Welcome back to 3CR Community Radio. You've been listening to a series of interviews taken by your 